Today's scripture reading is Hebrews 1, 5 through 14, and in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son? And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Hebrews 2, 1-4 through 4, We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by the angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Also, God testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The word of the Lord. As I have told you before, over the last 10 years that I've been with you as a church, uh, I grew up in the church at West Valley Presbyterian Church in Cupertino, California. I was baptized at the age of two. I was taught the foundations of our faith from a very early age. But for me, it wasn't until I got outside with God and was taught the truths about Jesus in the context of a camping ministry that I opened up my heart to Jesus and asked him to be my Lord and Savior at the age of 10. The truths that I was taught foundationally just didn't catch or didn't take hold in my heart until I got outside and one night looking up at the stars and before a campfire and I was given an invitation to accept Christ, it was then that spiritually I experienced my touchdown as we hope the 49ers will experience many of them this afternoon. I celebrated that Jesus was my Lord and Savior, but it was connecting the dots between this creator of the universe who created all things and holds the stars in place that that creator had come down and revealed himself to me in the person of his son Jesus, that I connected the dots spiritually and I realized that God had created all this universe, the, the, the stars, the trees, the, all of it, in order to create space and place for me to be in relationship with him. And in a similar way, the writer of Hebrews creates a context in which we can understand the revelation of God's Son, Jesus. 
From the very beginning of the verses, he points to the saving work of Jesus Christ. But he does it in the context of God the Father who has created all things and authored this world and then the story of salvation so that we can come to get to know him. As I said last week, Hebrews is all about God. God is referred to 68 times in the book. And from the very beginning, the writer wants to know what he's going to write is all about God. But it's about how God has revealed himself in the person of his son. That the one through whom all of creation came into being is going to come into creation in order to reveal God fully and finally to us so that we can get to know him. God wants all of us to connect the dots spiritually. In our Essentials of Faith in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, we seek to connect the dots right away. And there we say that we believe in one God, the sovereign creator and sustainer of all things, infinitely perfect and eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To him be all glory, honor, and praise forever. If you step back into the verses we looked at last week, we saw there that the Father of uh, all of creation made the universe through the Son. That it was through Jesus that God made the universe. The Son, then, we are told, sustains all things by his powerful word. And God the Father will affirm that Jesus is his Son, the word of flesh, the word who became flesh and, and became incarnate. That again and again, the Father will affirm Jesus as his one and only Son. You see, right from the beginning, we see the dynamic relationship within God's self. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this divine dance together brings about creation and wants to invite us into that dance in relationship with himself. As we saw in the first four verses, it was through the Son who God made the universe. God is the creator of every living thing. But as said in many places in the, Old Test- in the New Testament, he performed the work of creation through the Son. The amazing irony and complementarity of Scripture is that the Son, who is the heir, who will inherit all things, also created all things. I love this. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at work in creation. We see this back in Genesis. There he says that, you know, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It says, but the earth was formless and void and the spirit was hovering over the waters. Then God said, let there be light. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were there before the beginning and bring about creation as a reflection of the dynamic relationship that God has and the springing out of that relationship and a desire to bring all things in relationship to himself. That's why John would start his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and all things were made through him. Nothing was made that has been made without him. And in Colossians 1.16, it says all things, remember, All things were created through him and for him. Jesus was the vehicle through which creation occurred and ultimately the one who would inherit that creation. You see, the New Testament is clear from beginning to end that sees God as the creator of all things, but that God created through his son as the truth is found in numerous places. The son 
is that God's agent in creating the universe, and he now sustains the universe and will someday inherit it. The son with the father in the beginning, before the beginning, in the midst of working out creation and continuing to uphold and sustain creation, but then ultimately culminating it and bringing it to its fulfillment. What an amazing reality that gives us a glimpse into who God is in relationship with God's self. So what the writer of Hebrews tries to do is set that foundation from the very beginning. He doesn't want us to be uprooted like many of the trees we have seen around us over the last several weeks. He wants to be so rooted in the foundation of who God is, as told us in his word, that we'll become strengthened and secure even when life seems to assault us with all kinds of struggles and challenges and trials. What the writer's doing is pointing us forward. And the one to whom it points us forward to is Jesus, as God's unique son, the one who has dealt with sins fully and finally, the one who now rules at God's right hand, and the one to whom even angels will bow in submission. The rest of the chapter one of Hebrews is basically an illumination of how angels uh, worship and adore Jesus, how, how angels are, are ministering spirits who point us to God, and yet how Jesus is distinguished uh, from the Father as part of who God is, a three-person being with one nature. The section begins with a really good preacher's device. You often hear it from me or Pastor Greg. He asks a rhetorical question to get you to think. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? The implied answer, of course, is that God never said anything like this to any angel, but only to Jesus, the son. The quotation itself is from a verse from Psalm 2-7, which refers to the special relationship in Israel between the king and God. But it's a, in its original context, which was written uh, by David originally about Solomon, it ultimately points to the greater truth that Jesus is in the image of God. He is the son who God begets before all things. He was begotten, not made, existing with the Father before all time. You see, it is critical that we see that Christ is not simply another prophet or another great man of God. He is not just one among many, Buddha, Gandhi, whoever else any other religion may point to. He alone is God. And he is far superior to angels. Sometimes in our society, we, we uh, elevate angels to, to a higher status. Sometimes people worship angels versus worshiping Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews wants to clarify for us that Jesus is the one and only. He is far superior to any angel. This does not mean that he is not true man. Pastor Greg will, will, will un, you know, unearth this a little bit more for us, uncover this next week where we talk about Jesus as fully God and fully man. Jesus becomes fully man. But the primary concern here for the start of the writer of Hebrews is to help us understand the greatness of the Son, that he is truly God and that no angel can compare with him. 
Another commentator writes, again, we see the sun from four perspectives as we saw in the first four verses. Throughout the rest of the chapter, we will see that Jesus is the exalted one before us, that he is God's son, the heir of all things in verses five through nine. That he is the divine agent in creation in verse 10. And he shares God's eternal nature in verses 11 and 12. And ultimately, he even now is enthroned at God's right hand, as we are told in verse 13. The opening question, for to which of the angels did God ever say, implies that Christ is the one to be seen in all the scriptures and that he is the only one who has been declared the son and that all of the scriptures point us to him. You see, the early church saw in this psalm and in other places of scripture support for their background understanding of the major events throughout the story of Jesus's life, including his baptism, his transfiguration, his resurrection, and ultimately his elevation to the right hand of God the Father. In each of those occurrences, we find again and again the affirmation that Jesus is God's son. In essence, by eternal nature, he was God's son existing with the Father before all things. But also in flesh, by his miraculous conception, he is Emmanuel, God with us. But he's also declared the son in glory through his resurrection and God's decree. The authoritative affirmation of Jesus as the divine son applies to his whole earthly life. He is the incarnate son who comes in flesh. We see that affirmed at his birth. We also see that affirmed at his baptism. When Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist and identifies with the people of God in their sinfulness in order to rescue us, we find that when Jesus comes up out of the water, a voice from heaven speaks and says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And there in the divine dance, we see the Holy Spirit getting in on the act, coming down in the form of a dove, alighting on Jesus, again, affirming the identity of Christ. At Jesus' baptism, before he begins his ministry, before he has done anything himself to prove who he is, God the Father affirms his identity. I tried to do this with my son Josh, who's in the midst of his first round of finals at Nevada Union High School. It's the first time he's ever experienced just a gob of tests all at one time. And what I tried to do with Josh was to say this, son, before you start studying, before you get ready for your finals, before you get your ultimate grades, you are my son whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. I wanted him to know that before he studies and before he takes those tests, before Jesus would take the test of his temptation by Satan, God the Father wanted him to know, you are my son whom I love. And with you, I am well pleased. We see that identification and celebration at Jesus' transfiguration. There Jesus went up on a mountain. He took his three closest followers, Peter, John, and James, with him. And there we are told that Jesus was transfigured before them in their presence. They got to see the, beyond the curtain and who Jesus is and his heavenly glory And there, Peter decides to come up with a great game plan. Hey, let's set up some tents and let's just stay here like Moses up on the mountain. Forget the rest of the world. I just want to hang out with you. And I identify with that sometimes. 
But there the father says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Don't listen to Peter. Listen to Jesus. And there God affirms right in the middle of his ministry who Jesus is. But we also see this Jesus uh, acknowledged and affirmed as the son in his resurrected glory. In Romans 1.4 it says, at his resurrection he is designated the son of God in power. In other words, the perfection of his life from the very beginning and the way he lived and the way he fulfilled God's law and the innocence of his death mark him out truly as the only son of God and the redeemer of humankind. Jesus' identity as the son, the second person of the Trinity, is affirmed again and again and again. The son was beloved by the Father, and he was ultimately acknowledged and vindicated as the Son in his death and then resurrection. The, the Lord Jesus, who was there before all creation, is celebrated in his absolute superiority to the angels. You see, people could have gotten confused, thinking that Jesus was another angel, or maybe somewhat like God, but less than God. Maybe he was, you know, he experienced his death. Maybe he was less than the angels, but a little better than other human beings. The writer of Hebrews wants us to understand that Jesus is fully God, but also fully man. That he's different and unique and separate from any angel. Because he alone is the one, the Father says, you are my son. That God has but one son in whom he is well pleased, and that this son is Jesus Christ. All sonship then, or daughtership, our identification as children of God comes in connection with Christ. You see, he is the one and only son. But as we receive him and welcome him, we find our identity as sons and daughters of the living God. John 1.12 talks about this. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, as we celebrate Jesus' sonship in connection with the Father, we find our own identity and belonging as children of the living God. That assurance is not on how well I did today or how poorly I did today or how well you did or how well poorly, how, how well your day is going. Your identity is rooted in what Jesus has already done for you. That's an amazing privilege and an amazing reality that is at the core of our foundation of faith. Our assurance of faith is found in what Christ has done. As if we didn't get it the first time, the writer of Hebrews pulls upon a second quotation, this one from 2 Samuel 7.14 and 2 Chronicles 17.13. He says, I will be his father and he will be my son. Again, for the preacher's purpose in the historical context, this is David writing about his son Solomon, but we see its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus' coming because he alone is God who will reign on God's throne for all eternity. The son comes down, steps down from the throne of God and comes to this earth, living and dwelling among us. But then in his death and resurrection is elevated by God back to that place at the right hand of the father. Jesus is the one to whom it all speaks to and points to. No other angel, no other intermediary. It's him and him alone. So the father identifies the son here in Hebrews, but he also speaks about the son. He says about the son three core things here, beginning in verse six. 
He says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, that his throne will last forever, and that he rules in righteousness and hates wickedness. What does it mean that Jesus is the firstborn when we talk about him existing for all eternity? The term firstborn means that he is the chief one. He is called the firstborn because he exists before all creation and because all creation is his heritage. He is above all things and was a part of bringing about the existence of all things. He was with God and he was God and he was a part of the work of creation. To be called the firstborn then is to be in a special sense sacred. Since the firstborn of God's people were demarcated as consecrated to the Lord, so Jesus was wholly dedicated to the will and service of the Father. So the designation firstborn belongs to Christ as the eternal Son and also as the one who would come to redeem us and make us sons and daughters, who after humbling himself for our salvation becomes exalted to the place of honor. Colossians 1, 15 to 16 speaks of this. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. Now that the writer of Hebrews has, has told us what God did not say about the angels and what he said about Jesus, then the writer of Hebrews turns to two Old Testament references to report what God did say about them. First, in Deuteronomy thirty-two forty-three, as well as from Psalm 97, 7, God says, let all God's angels worship him, that is Jesus, the Son, This quotation makes it clear. All angels are worshipers. Jesus is the one adored or worshipped. When God brings the firstborn into the the world, when, when Jesus existed before all time and helped bring about creation, the angels are there celebrating and praising God for his creative work. The amazing thing is then throughout the life of Jesus, we see the angels continuing to affirm and support him. For instance, in the Garden of Gethsemane, at the close of his life, the angels are there supporting him and strengthening him as he's weeping drops of blood in preparation for his crucifixion. When he was tempted by Satan in the desert, we are told that angels were there ministering to him, supporting him and strengthening him. The angels again and again come alongside Jesus and affirm him and encourage him throughout his earthly life and ministry. But even more than just in coming alongside Jesus and affirming and supporting him, we are told that they worship Jesus because he alone is God and he alone could bear our sins and he alone is exalted in his resurrection. All things were created by him and for him and that includes the angels who are subject to him. Amazingly, we are told here that angels are even subject to change and decay, but the throne of God lasts forever. Jesus will not wear out and not decay. While the earth will, angels and human beings, and we ourselves know that reality in our our earthly lives and flesh, Jesus alone will exist for all time. He created the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of his hands and ultimately he will sustain the world to lead it to 
its purpose and its end. By contrast to the angels then who are subordinate in status and fleeting by nature, the Son is majestic and everlasting. To support this point, the preacher recites another pair of Old Testament quotations. There are seven all together here to point to Christ. The first of these, Psalm 45, 6 and 7, cited in verse 8 and 9, was originally a psalm for a royal wedding in Israel. But here it points to the consummation of Jesus' status. So it appears in Hebrews as one of the other places in the New Testament where Jesus is explicitly addressed as God. It says, God, your throne, O God, is forever. It's Father speaking to Son saying, your throne's going to last for all eternity. And later, in Psalm 102, 25 to 27, it refers to Jesus as Lord, the creator of the heavens and the earth, that they are the work of his hands. In other words, Jesus' status as the one true God is affirmed again based on the reality of his eternal throne, which will never wear out. About the Son, the Father says, your throne, O God, will last forever. And ultimately, it points to through Psalm 110 that Jesus would sit at the Father's hand until he makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. In other words, what we are to understand is that Jesus, before all things began, was reigning and ruling with the Father. He had that elevated status even then. But then he stepped down into creation in order to redeem us and make us sons and daughters of the living God. But then he was elevated to the right hand of the Father who will defeat all enemies of the Son and ultimately secure that rule and reign for all eternity. It is an amazing reality, church, that the one who ruled and reigned before all things would come into this world. That the one who will judge the living and the dead came as the incarnate son in order to help us to find the life that could only be found in him. And then that reign and rule that is for all eternity is one of righteousness and justice. You see, if God, the Father, Jesus, the Son, was a bad ruler or a bad king, we would not want him to exist and to reign and rule for all eternity, would we? It's like a bad president that we're hoping, hey, okay, you know, time's up. Let's get somebody new. And I'm not saying that about any one president in our history. Please hear me. General metaphor, church. All rulers, all kings fail at one time or another. They're all human, other than Jesus, who exists before all time, comes into time, and then redeems all time and people who turn to him. This is what sets Jesus apart as the one and only unique son. This is what needs to lead us to elevate him like we did in our worship and in our songs this morning, that he is the fairest one, fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nations. Son of God and Son of Man, the one who demands our attention. The thing about this for the Hebrews, and I think the thing about it for us is this. Evidently, the first readers of Hebrews were undergoing some sort of distress, and as a consequence, they were having difficulty holding on to their faith. 
They were weary and disheartened. And all they could feel was a sense of exhaustion. And all they could see was trouble around them. So if you feel weary in your faith and in your life, know that you are not alone. And you could hear during the fellowship time after this service, you are not alone. We're all tired and weary. But what the writer of Hebrews wants us to see is this. That God, the author of creation, is also the author of our salvation. And that the one who created all things also sustains all things. And that the one Jesus who was with the Father before all time, higher than the angels, was made a little lower than the angels, becoming flesh incarnate and human, human being, becoming a human being. But also then to, in his death, ultimately lift us up above the angels and into heaven in order to experience eternity with him. Church, we need to know that this is our hope. That Jesus did not leave us to our own devices, but came as our Savior and our friend. And if we understand that reality, we need to pay more careful attention to what we have heard, as we're told in Hebrews 2.1, so that we do not drift away. And we're all potentially susceptible to drifting away, to sort of, you know, losing sight of our foundation, Romans 12, 2 says, we are meant to be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. I once heard it said the problem with the living sacrifices is that they can crawl off the altar. So we need to continue to place our lives on the altar or foundation of Jesus and not ignore so great a salvation. It's a salvation that he proclaimed in person, announcing that in him the kingdom had come. It's the salvation that was affirmed by the disciples, apostles, and eyewitnesses who wrote down the scriptures and pointed us to Jesus. And it's also testified to by God, by the signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Spirit. For God did not just create all things or come into this world to save us. He actually sustains us through the presence of his Spirit the one who was perfect in his nature and personhood before all things, the one who eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is with us to the end. And he wants us to be his friends. He wants us to have our foundation so rooted in him that we will not lose sight of what he is doing even now. The psychologist M. Scott Pett began one of his best-selling books with the truth everyone knows. Life is difficult. Anyone who has fought an addiction, wept over a, a troubled child, discovered a malignancy, cried out for justice, wondered where to find enough food to make it through another day, faced the end of a loving relationship, spent a cold night sleeping under a freeway bridge, coped with a disability or family member who had a disability or stood in grief at a graveside knows that life is difficult. So the question is, is there something different, worthy, or redemptive about the life of Jesus? And the good news is, there is. The son through whom creation was made becomes the son in whom creation is redeemed And is now the son by whom creation is ruled. And as such, he is the source of our salvation. In church, that is very good news. Amen.
Sing this out with me. 